I'm taking a summer break for the month of August with my family, and I hope you are doing something amazing and relaxing as well. So instead, I thought this week and for the rest of the month, I would share some clips from some of my old favorite episodes that you will enjoy revisiting as well. First up is an episode with Michael Roderick, the king of connecting. And we're going to talk about what true influence really is and how to build a referable brand. Enjoy. You're listening to the No BS Agency Podcast. We talk strategies that can take your one to two person branding agency from $5,000 to $30,000 per month without hiring employees or working your ass off. All you have to do is cut the BS. I am Pia Silva. So you're probably at the core of a lot of, you are at the core of a lot of my uh, closest friends. <laughs> like I met Ciara Pressler through you. I met mm-hmm. uh, Michael Jordan through you. Mm-hmm. And, um, Jeff Madoff through you. Yep. Um, yeah, you're you're a super connector. Okay, so so that that was your focus, and this is not mm-hmm. not that, but it's like a more specific version of it. So, so how did that evolve? And, and is, and is that what your, the referable brand concept, is that what you have been focused on exclusively? And what do you really mean by I'm focused on that now? So basically, um, what I discovered was that for a long time, I really thought that all of the networking piece of things, like the connecting aspect of things was the reason I ended up in all of the rooms I ended up in. And I started seeing just a lot of really sketchy stuff in the networking world where people were trying to sort of sell people on the idea of like, I'll teach you how to meet somebody famous and then you'll suddenly make millions of dollars. And I didn't want to end up sort of in that camp, right? Like I didn't want to have that be the value proposition um, because the last thing you want is for people to be like, oh, well, you know a lot of people, so I want to know you. What I often like to say is that people love to feel useful and they hate to feel used. And I knew that if I sort of kept myself in this place, it would be more of like people being like, I'm going to hire you to, uh, you know, help me uh, meet these like top level people. And then if it doesn't work out, it was almost like a PR kind of position in a lot of in a lot of ways where you can't really make a you can't make a strong promise. So so I asked myself. Simply, if networking was out of the equation, if I actually took out everything that I knew about networking, what still got me in those rooms? And what I realized was it was because people would talk about me when I wasn't in the room in a good way. So that's where it started to it, it started to come from. And I was like, you know what? I wonder if there's something to sort of packaging your ideas in a way that people talk about them when you're not there. And that's really where this started. And it was kind of this, um, I was doing one of my networking workshops and I took about 15 minutes to talk about this referable brand concept in it as sort of an experiment. I was just like, hey guys, you know, this is something that I think is kind of interesting. 
And at the end of that workshop, I offered people the opportunity to do hot seats and everybody wanted their hot seat to be on referable brand. So since I had built all of these frameworks before around relationship building, frameworks that people to this day still remember and mm. will come to me and say, I, I remember the four ways to think about asking or I've, you know, I remember the giver's fix and like all these different, you know, concepts. I said, okay, well, what if I started to look at referability and I started to develop frameworks around referability? But the very interesting thing about that was the second that I was able to help folks look at that language and figure out how do you take your intellectual property and sort of package it, um, all of a sudden that became an easier thing to sell. So folks were way more interested in creating a referable brand for themselves. And I had framed it as, you know, helping a thoughtful giver become a thought leader. So people mm. that are really good at giving, they're really good at supporting others. They're usually really bad at packaging their own intellectual property. Mm -hmm. So if you sort of come in and help them with that, all of a sudden they can sell their product for more. They get more people to talk about it. More people want to interview them. So there's just way more tangible things that happen as a result of this idea of referability. Whereas networking is sort of a black box. Like in uh, connecting and relationship building, you just kind of never know what the results could be. So somebody could hire you and you could be the best at actually teaching people these principles. But the fact of the matter is, there are so many variables in, t in terms of how successful they are. But you can't argue if you help somebody create a framework that then gets them a bunch of attention and interviews and changes a $500 product to a $5,000 product. Yep. It's so funny because you know I've always been the branding person, right? The badass yeah. branding person. But the real turn in our business was when we packaged our services in 2014. Like it was night and day. It went from proposals to this is our service, take it or leave it. And it was like so much easier to sell, so much easier for people to refer, like didn't have to do marketing. People were just sending me people because, oh, they build your whole brand in a day. That was super easy, to, <laughs> super it's, easy to explain. Oh, there's a price. Yeah. You know, there's a price. Oh, it's on their site. Oh, you literally know exactly what it is. It's so easy. Um, and it was an it was just a, a complete game changer for us. And it's so funny they're even saying this because as a um, branding person, you know, people come to me for branding. But that's a huge part of what I do for them, too, because it's yeah. like, well, that makes your brand awesome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and package services. <laughs> yeah. And, and so often we're just it. so we're so close to it that we have yeah. all this language that other people, I, I call them container words where it's like, uh -huh. we hear the word and it's basically like, everybody is like, yeah, I know that word, but I, there's like 50 different definitions for what it means. Right. Yeah. Brand so, is at the top of that list. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so a lot of the time what I'll tell people is that you have to take the container, you have to open it up and find the contents and you have to mm. say like, okay, if you couldn't use that word, which word would you use? Yeah. Right. And all of a sudden you end up with a bunch of really, really interesting words. And then you can kind of create like a language sandbox where you can just sort of like play around and come up with titles, names, all these different types of things. But you mm -hmm. first got to step away from that aspect of the container words. And I think that mm -hmm. so often that's kind of where people start because they see other people doing something and they say, oh, well, yes, I want to be, you know, I, I want to be that leadership expert or whatever the scenario is. And it's like, well, but what does leadership actually 
mean to you? And are you actually doing leadership, right? Like all of these questions that that pop up when you actually really sit down and say, okay, well, what is it that you're actually doing, you know, for people? Um, I often refer to it as giving yourself an F, right? Where it's like, um, so often we spend the time trying to be like, this is what I do. And we don't spend enough time being like, this is what I do for, right? This is how... I'm helping this person. This is what mm. I'm actually doing for this individual. And once we do that, it's way easier to sell because people are like, oh, okay, you can do that. Just like your, your example where it's like, you know, we can build your brand in a day basically, right? Was the, was sort of the value, was the value proposition there for, for people. It was so much easier for them to just like go to somebody and say like, oh, okay, that's, that's exactly how it works. And that's what it will do for me as opposed to here's all our templates and here's all the things that we can do or let us know what we can do for you and we'll figure it out. Right. The worst right? one. Oh, man. <laughs> Sounds like the best one is actually the worst one when oh. you're asking the client, what do you want? I can do everything. Yes. And, cust- and it's so interesting because people will sort of frame it as like customization, Yes, you know, and be like, oh, it's a customized package and it's all for you. Right. And they think that they're helping somebody. But really what they're doing is they're creating um, the what do you want to have for dinner conversation that you have with your spouse, right? Where it's like, well, I, I, I you know, I'm thinking pizza. Well, I don't really like pizza. Um, you know, do you want to do Thai? Well, maybe Thai, you know, and you're going back and forth. And nobody wants to have <laughs> so that good. conversation with a client, you know? <laughs> that's so good. That's exactly what it is. And that's why people people and clients struggle so much to find a meeting of the minds because they're having the dinner conversation. That is exactly what it is. Yeah. (laughs) Can I, can I um, go back and just highlight something you said? I think that is very important. Um, When you are using a word, you said leadership. I think that's a perfect example, right? Lots of people Mm -hmm. are selling leadership. Actually, Many more people than use the word leadership are selling leadership, actually, because yeah. <laughs> leadership is at the core of a lot of what we're all selling. But what you said, um, and I, I just want to emphasize this to to our listeners, is, okay, but what do you mean by leadership? What's your definition of that? That's a great exercise. I'm working with a, a couple of people right now. One of them was using the word bland and, you know, talking about branding and a bland brand. And I said, you know, yeah. That's a great word, but it will have so much more meaning if you tell me what you mean by bland, because actually people have very different definitions of bland. Oh, yeah. Um, But your defining of it will be the nuance that gives your brand more um, chutzpah, you know, (laughs) like more color. And so that we don't, because a lot, similarly with my badass word, it's like, I've said it before, I'll say it again. In 2013, Man, were was that edgy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In 2021, everyone <laughs> throws this word around, and sometimes it's just a throwaway word somewhere on the home, somewhere on the website, but it doesn't have a lot of meaning because it's just like, oh yeah, and then we're gonna, and it's gonna be so badass, and you know, yeah, it's like, but what do you really mean? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So a lot of the time we're thinking about um the idea of sort of like ideal target client and ideal market but what most people forget about is that each market actually has a different level of sophistication so you could find your ideal target client but if their level of marketing is so sophisticated that they've heard the word badass 80 times it's actually not going to have the same resonance with somebody who's not heard that word before or not even been marketed to in that particular way and a lot of the time that's what happens with words after a while a new word or a word that we think is you know edgy and different and all these different types of things actually starts to become common 
because the market becomes so sophisticated to that particular word in much mm -hmm. the same way that in early advertising, we could see one sign and we might actually go and buy. Whereas now we need so many impressions to even consider buying and sort of go through that process. Right. And, and I mean, people used to buy just seeing something as simple as, you know, 50% off and they would be like, wow, 50% off. I'm going to buy. And now everybody is, is saying, okay, but, but what is the actual value here? And you have to con consistently think about how is your market becoming more sophisticated and how is your language sort of starting to match that market, right? And starting to become more interesting to that market. So if they already know about a concept and let's, uh, let's just say like a basic marketing concept. So a very basic marketing concept is the idea of sort of like that timer clock, like time ticking down the scarcity type of dynamic. So if everybody's seen some kind of scarcity dynamic, then you have to think about what is your way of presenting that scarcity dynamic that is true to who you are, first off, and second, that isn't going to feel like it's just another person throwing scarcity at them, mm. right? How are you going to craft it? How are you going to craft that craft that message? Are you the person who says, well, you know, the reason why there's only this many of this particular thing is because I'm actually going to be very rigorous as far as who actually gets in. And we're going to do like three interviews instead of one, you know, call to see if it's a fit, right? Like you want to think about what is your way of creating, you know, of dealing with that level of sophistication because people are just going to keep getting more sophisticated to the marketing messages and to the language that we put out there. So it's up to us to start figuring out, okay, how do we come up with those little shifts that are going to cause people to say, oh, okay. Um, you're doing it, but you're doing it just slightly different enough that I'm interested now um, because I want to see like what it means and, and how you're coming up with it. Yeah. And I'll add to that, that if you are doing it from an authentic, genuine place, that's usually how you find those, right? If you're trying yep. to think, well, how do I change this so that people don't know that it's counting down or it's, you know, a fake scarcity yep. It's going to be different than, you know, the, I would say the easiest way to do that is to just genuinely have a really intense filter that's, that you keep to. Um, yep. And that that's tough, you know. Sure. <laughs> I did a, I, I launched a program um, like a month and a half ago and I kept to that filter and it was tough. There were people who wanted in and I was like, this is just, it's just not for you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what else to yeah. say. And it's hard to say goodbye to that money too. When sure. you're like, I want people in, I want to help people. I know I could help you, but not in this context, but that's the easiest way to have a kind of genuine scarcity or whatever it is. Yeah. And you're pointing out what's, what's probably one of the most, uh, what I consider one of the most important things. And this is the most important thing in relationship building uh, as well, which is you have to curate, you have to decide who gets who gets in you know who is part of that circle because everybody is going to be talking to each other helping each other supporting each other and one person coming in who doesn't get it or who is you know going to really just cause a lot of issues and a lot of challenges could ruin things for so many other people. And it's not that, and, and I think it's really important because I, I think a lot of time people hear the idea of curating and think, well, oh, you're pushing people out or you're saying you're too good for people and all this other stuff. And it's actually not. It's actually about saying, where is this, like, is this really going, is everybody going to actually benefit together? Or 
is this going to cause like a lot of conflict and a lot of issues with this particular with this particular group? Because for some people, you do them the biggest disservice by letting them into a program or letting them into a process of an audience that's going to make them feel like the pariah. That's going to make them feel bad. And you're not the, even the one, you're not doing it. You're not saying, hey, this person's bad or this person has, has this issue. If it's not a match, those people are going to, they're going to know it instantly and they're going to naturally start to be like, oh, I'm going to kind of stay away from, you know, I'm going to stay away from that one. And it's just, I, I don't know, I, I really do think it's just a disservice to bring people into something just because you want more people, mm. you know, in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, that also ties, I, I talk about this a lot in just the, the world of relationship building as well. We focus so much on relationship acquisition that we forget about the importance of relationship retention, where it's like we, we figure out, you know, we want to meet as many people as possible, connect with as many people people as possible, build your network, you know, all those things. But ultimately, where the real opportunities come from is when the relationships get deeper. And that only happens if you spend time with people and you get to know them over time. So taking the time to say, okay, I'm going to spend more than one meeting with somebody and get to know them over time is so, so valuable. And so many people don't even pay attention to that that aspect at all. Okay, Michael, two things. Who has the time? <laughs> you know, you saw me because you and I were, yep. I mean, I was out there networking and I would see you everywhere because you were everywhere. And for a short stint, I was also everywhere. And then I don't know if you noticed, but then I just disappeared because I was like, I can't keep this up. I'm tired. And I, you know, I... I also have friends who are not in this networking world that I would like to cultivate relationships with and all these things. So what do sure. you suggest for that? Yeah. What are we supposed to do? We don't have time. You yes. have two kids. How do you do that? So it really comes down to an aspect of uh, leveraging as opposed to trading. So most of the time when we think about staying in touch with people and contacting them, we think we, we immediately go to I've got to do a one on one call with them. I've got to, you know, I've got to do a catch up call with them and all these different types of things. But there are all these leveraged opportunities to be able to catch up with people and give your network also a chance to meet each other. So in numerous instances, what I do, uh, because yeah, I don't have the time, uh, you know, always to do like one-on-ones and, and, and catch, up with, catch up with friends and things. A lot of the time what I'll do is I'll co-host some gathering with a bunch of, you know, with a bunch of people who I haven't seen in a while. And I'll basically be like, you know, you guys should meet each other. You guys should get to know each other. And then sometimes they'll come and they'll sort of catch up with me, right? Um, and we'll get a chance to we'll get a chance to chat. If there's something that we want to chat about specifically and we want to, you know, set up time for one-on-one, that's great. And we can always do it. But there's still sort of that touch point, right? Um, the other thing that works really well is um, I call it the uh, my OCG framework, where basically if something comes my way, um, and I can take full advantage of it and it really does fit within my wheelhouse, then it's truly an opportunity. So if somebody reaches out and says, you know, we want you to talk about referability at this conference or at this event or at this summit, 
fantastic. You know, that that's great. I'll make that time for that. But then somebody might come to me and say, hey, Mike, um, you know, would love for you to come and talk about social media at my, you know, at my event. And I'm not really a social media guy. Like, I understand it. I do some decent work. But rather than sort of trying to, like, shoehorn a talk in, what I'll do is I'll ask, okay, which of the people in my circle are really, really good at social media who this could be a real opportunity for because the opportunity that came to me is not an opportunity, it's a coincidence, right? So I can take that coincidence and I can turn it into a gift, right? OCG. Um, so I can basically say like here to somebody in my network, here's this talk or here's this presentation that I'm not able to do or that doesn't, you know, that doesn't fit for me. Or if I get invited to an event, you know, you get a lot of free tickets to events and there are things where it's like you just can't do it. So you reach out to somebody who maybe you haven't touched base with in a while and it's a way to stay in touch. It's a way to keep those relationships warm. So to your, you know, to, to your question, I really think what it comes down to is look for opportunities to sort of leverage that time, either by bringing people together or just having, you know, little touch base scenarios with that OCG framework. And you're far more likely to keep the relationships warm. Wait, what does OCG stand for? Did you say it? Yep. Opportunity Coincidence Gift. Okay, I love that. Yes, leverage. That's the that's the name of the game. Now going back to our, our other conversation, we were talking about the, the group setting. Mm -hmm. The word that came to mind, and then I just realized that I actually, and this is good, haven't heard this word in a while, because this was like very in fashion about five, ten years ago. Um, synergy. Synergy mm -hmm. was so overused, right? But I yep. actually haven't heard it that much, probably because it was so overused. And then yep. people knew I can't say that word anymore. It's too. But you know what? That's exactly what you're looking for. Synergy, yep. where you have a, a group of people where the group is actually adding that much more value. And um, one bad apple or like one person dragging it down can really take away from that synergy and that value. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit. So, are you doing? Like, how do you work right now? The bulk of the work that I've been doing recently that I've been really excited about is um, I've, I've been calling it a uh, jargon-free jumpstart, uh, mm -hmm. where basically I have this grid that I've been using uh, where I basically ask a bunch of questions and come up with about nine different ways to look at something, somebody's offer. And usually when you look at something in multiple in multiple ways, what ends up happening is you start to find new language, right? Like you start to actually get rid of a lot of the jargon when you have people talk about it in different contexts. Basically, there are kind of two main parts to the grid. The first is a concept that I actually used a lot in my relationship building process, which was TCM, which is every single person has an index of time, connections, and money right? Those are in essence kind of our three currencies. We have our time, we have the relationships that we have, um, and we have the money that we spend. But when you think about a business and whether or not a business is uh, a nice to have or a need to have, it really comes down to three things. It's easy to remember them because if you don't have at least one of the three, three things, you'll be sad. And that's solve a problem, alleviate pain, and decrease friction, right? So it's, are you solving a problem for people that like actually exist, you know, are you getting rid of pain and are you, do you have a process that's going to make it so that this pro that what they're doing takes less time, right? Or is less aggravating or is less frustrating. So when you ask somebody the hyper-specific question of how do you solve a problem for your client in regards to time, 
all of a sudden they can't use a lot of the words that they were using before because they weren't necessarily thinking about what they're doing for somebody's time. Can you give me an example? So, um, so let's say you are an accountant, right? And as an accountant, if you ask an accountant about solving a problem, they might be like, yeah, well, I do your taxes for you. And that's the problem that I solve, right? But if I say, what's the problem that you solve specifically in regards to the client's time? Then you say, well, you know, to do your taxes, if you try to do it on your own, could take you 30, 40, you know, hours, you know, possibly. And you could just send it to me and have it back in, you know, two days, right? So that's a completely different way of looking at the of looking at the offer and looking at the way that that offer is sort of you know presented uh, to mm-hmm. to people. So when you sort of stretch folks to think about that, what happens is they have to start to drop all of the all of the language that they've learned already, right? Like all of the jargon, all of the stuff that they kind of learned as their like tagline and their presentations and their 30 second pitches and like all of that kind of stuff. It goes out the window because in many cases it doesn't answer that question of like, how are you helping people with their time? How are you helping people with either their connections to others or their connection to themselves? And how are you helping people with their uh, issues around money? Right. The second you start asking those questions, you're going to go in lots of different directions. So, you know, what's been interesting is by doing something like that and asking all those questions, it's very easy to come up with a ton of language that basically are kind of these like they start fires in people's brains. Right. And they sort mm-hmm. of get you being like, oh, yeah, I could I could create a product out of that or, oh, you know, that could be at the top of my website or whatever the scenario is, you know, and, and a lot of the time we think about, we think about creativity in the context of like being bound, uh, being unbound. Right. And be like, you know, if I'm just like, just like thinking outside the box and creating, you know, I'm going to be like huge and creative and all this kind of stuff. But what's really fascinating is that the second that you give people boundaries, they actually become more creative. The second that you say to somebody, listen, you know, you, I want you to come up with something, but you can't say these things. All of a sudden they have to think about all the stuff that isn't just the immediate, right? And they have to actually come up with new ideas and new concepts. So by basically giving them some boundaries, I help them become more creative within that process. I love that. I love that you um, use questions specifically. Good questions can really break somebody out of their box. Yeah, yeah, it's so cool. important. We, I, I feel like we don't spend enough time thinking about the questions we ask. Mm-hmm. I really think that, you know, so, so often, if we just ask better questions, we can really, really transform the the language that we're using. We can transform the relationships that we have. And, you know, ultimately, I mean, even interviews, right? Interviews are interesting as a result of somebody asking really good questions, right? As a result of somebody actually listening to the other person and saying, this is the thing that I'm unclear on, or this is the thing that I want to dig deeper into, right? And how many times do we listen to something specifically interview oriented where the host has a list of questions that they normally use and we sort of get to this point of like, eh, you know, yeah, I guess that's okay. I guess I'll listen to it because it doesn't feel like a conversation to us anymore. It just yes. kind of feels like, you know, oh, I could, I could read this. And if you, if you listen to an interview and you're like, I could read this, um, then there's a problem, you know? 
Well, this is not that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is the opposite of that. <laughs> I'm in agreement in that. And I also, I'm um, the power of asking good questions. That is like, I think at the core of a lot of the work that any um, effective service provider is doing is asking really good questions and then shutting up yeah. and <laughs> listening, yeah. right? Yep. What a skill. <laughs> I know, right? Well, it's it's one of those things where it's it, it's so it, it is so interesting because so often we're trying to sort of tell people about our value and that is the absolute worst thing that we can do, right? And yes. if we ask really good questions and then we let them talk and then we respond to those questions with with those answer answers with even better questions, yes. we are showing our value like instantly. People are like, "Oh my god." wow, you like really get me. Like you really, you're really paying attention because so many people don't, right? Like how many call, sales calls have you been on where the person basically like spent the whole time trying to tell you how valuable they were and you were like, well, this isn't valuable to me. Like this isn't <laughs> useful to me because I don't care how many years you've been in business and I don't care, you know, about your, you know, your last, you know, huge success or, you know, all of those different types of things. I care about my issue. So like, are we talking about that or are we talking yeah. about you? Yeah. And I, it's actually, I, I find that it's really a newbie mistake too, mm -hmm. because, and it, I think it comes from, uh, oh, well, I'll speak for myself. I think it came from insecurity, right? Like I don't sure. like when you're first starting out, I didn't feel like I knew enough. So I feel like I had to prove to people that I did know enough. So what do you do that? Well, you start talking and trying to explain things to them and yep. you know, oh, oh, I'm so embarrassed. Like, especially in the branding world specifically, because you're, no, let me explain how important branding is. It's like yep, exactly. The you worst want them conversation. To know. Yeah. Right. But they're because they don't know. Yeah. Because they don't know. Let's be honest. Nobody yep. really knows. So yep. you're like, no, no, no. But I kind of I, I remember Steve and I, we literally have this book that's like explains what branding is. <laughs> I remember like reading it and being like, okay, I need to understand this so I can go tell people. Um just such the such the I don't want to say wrong. It's just ineffective. It's like yep. so much better to your point, like a great question with a great follow-up question and then somebody else talking and telling you, they will feel your expertise and understanding by the thoughtful follow-up questions. That's how they feel understood. And that is, there's no, what, what do we all want as humans? We just want to be heard and understood. Like if you can really just um, sit back and let somebody talk, they will love you and they will trust you. As yeah. the person that truly understands them, and that's how you get hired. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the time, what what I like to say is that you can't underestimate the significance of making someone else feel significant, mm. right? And and the thing is, so often people don't feel significant in a lot of sales conversations, in a lot of business conversations. Heck, in a lot of mastermind groups, right? There are lots of mastermind groups out there where where people there are people sitting in that group thinking this person doesn't actually care about me. I'm just a number, you know, to them, right? And if you're the person who really takes the time to show that you're listening, to show that you care, to pay attention to what people what people are saying, you instantly stand out from so so many because it's not it's it's not a skill that is taught, right? Like it's not something like you don't go into your first business class or, you know, learn any kind of like online thing that says, hey, 
make sure people feel like people when mm. you're, you know, talking to them about your product or talking to them about your service. When I used to raise money for Broadway shows, the number one question I got all the time, how do you find investors? And my answer is always the same. You stop calling them investors. Mm -hmm. And they have all sorts of different things that they care about and that they love and that they want. So understand who they are. Understand whether or not this is something that is of interest to them, that matters to them. And if they want to have further conversation about it, have further conversation about it. If they don't, you're never going to convince them. And and I think in business it's the same way. I, I you know I get all these you know LinkedIn messages, and and now it's happening on the Book of Faces a bunch too, where like somebody will friend you, uh, <laughs> and they'll be like you know hey, you know, just want to know, like, how's your health going, you know, during quarantine or, or, or whatnot? And you're like, uh, I don't know. I've got two kids and I, I think I drink enough water. Like what, you know, <laughs> and the next thing you know, they're like, you know, they're, they're like, well, you know, I've got a program or I've got this thing and I can help you with your health and all this. And it's just like, well, okay, well now I'm not talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, you know, going back to that market sophistication idea, right? It's like now there are literally bots that are asking us these questions, right? There, there, there are instances where people are automating follow-ups to be like, I, you know, wanted to check and see if you got my free checklist or or whatever after you add them as, as a friend or whatever, and and you're like. I didn't even respond to you. Like, I'm not interested in this checklist. Like, why? (laughs) Okay, so here's, so I will freely admit that I have not done that system yet. So this is not from my personal experience, but this is from my experience coaching people who have implemented some version of this. This is my take on that world. Um, When you're a referable brand, right? So you're super Mm -hmm. specific in your profile. You work with a very clear niche. What you have to offer is very specific. The, that bot situation, that that like systematized thing, is to find the five percent of people who are like, "Sweet, this checklist was awesome," and that's it, you know. Yep. And we don't care that Michael Roderick is annoyed with us. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't care that Pia ignored our email, uh, our message. All you know, because all we care about is that five percent, ten percent. I don't know what the numbers are. because yeah. I haven't done it. Yeah. And that's the game. But it, it and it only works if you're super specific in what you're offering so that the people who are going to respond and go like, oh yeah, this is exactly what I need, are able to have that experience. Because if you're just like, I'm a coach, it's like, huh, okay, you and everyone else. Um, but if, you know, it's like, I coach, uh, I don't know, 50-year-old yoga instructors. <laughs> like, <laughs> and if you're a 50-year-old yoga instructor, you're like, I need that 50-year-old yoga instructor checklist. <laughs> we can go on podcasts and we can have conversations and we can say like, you know, this has worked for us or this has been useful or these are the things that we believe are work, right? But ultimately, everybody has to figure out what actually works for them. There are people who, yes, that those bots are the thing for them. And they work for them. And that is totally fine for them, right? We can disagree with it. We can not like it ourselves. Like we can be annoyed by these types of things. But I think, you know, I think the danger in most of the sort of entrepreneur world, personal development world is believing that somebody else has the like actual answer, Mm -hmm. right? 
in, in Broadway, we used to talk about the fact that like nobody knows anything when we would talk about like you're trying to see figure out if a show is going to succeed. And honestly, in entrepreneurship, nobody knows anything, right? Like mm. we are always basically doing market research on what works and what doesn't. And the market is constantly getting more sophisticated. So it's always changing, mm. right? So I talk about this uh, all the time too. It's like I call it the tennis novice versus the tennis pro concept, right? So if a tennis novice misses a shot, the game is over, right? Because they are obsessed with the product. They're hoping that they, they win. And if they don't, if there's a, a, a barrier to them winning, they're in their own head and they're going to mess up, right? But the tennis pro misses a shot and basically says, okay, this is new information. What can I learn? Sort of where can I go next? How can I figure it out? And that's because the tennis pro is a student of the process, Right. So if we just sort of put ourselves in that place of I'm a student of the process, I'm testing these things out and I'm I'm learning sort of all the time, then we don't worry if something falls apart, you know, and I I write I write a daily email. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think this I think this concept applies in business. I think this concept applies across the board. So people ask, how do you write every day? And what I always tell them is I give myself permission to suck. So basically, I understand that I can't be consistent and brilliant. There's absolutely no way, right? You know, some things are just going to be better than others, right? Some things I'm going to write and people are going to be responding and really be interested in. And some things I'm going to write and it's going to get crickets, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I never have any idea because the market's going to decide that. They're going to figure out sort of what they want or or what they don't. So basically, you know, just as you give without expectation of return, you write without expectation of response. And when you write without expectation of response, then you stop worrying about what you're writing about. Like you stop worrying about like, how are people going to react and what are they going to think, you know, and all this stuff. And then you just write, you just Mm. put that stuff out there, put that idea out there. And so, so often you'll think, oh, this thing is kind of a throwaway. And that's the thing everybody wants. That's (laughs) nuts. It's so crazy when that happens. I, you know, the, the thing that I keep that I struggle with, and I'm curious what your experience is with this, is mm-hmm. that often happens mm-hmm. because the things that are dear to my heart that I work on are the things that I am most struggling with working on in that moment, mm-hmm. which might be, I'm saying more advanced, but like you had to go through a couple of things to get to wherever that is. Sure. So I'm so. I, it's near and dear to my heart because I'm wrestling with that very thing and I feel like, oh, I figured it out and now I'm sharing it and, and like, here you go, you know, but may, but it's the things often that are a little like more like something I would have written a couple of years ago that are received better for obvious reasons, right? Like if you're where I was a couple of years ago, then that's what you're going to receive. But I have a really hard time getting into that mind space and writing for that because I'm self-critical about it. Like, oh, well, everyone already knows this or like everyone's heard this a million times. And I, and I go around in circles. I mean, this is just a little insight into my brain (laughs) going around in circles, trying to create this content. So when I'm talking about referability, there are like three main concepts that you Mm -hmm. always have to consider. And it's easy to remember because it spells the word aim. So you want to think about taking aim when you're creating a referable brand. And uh, the first is accessibility, the second is influence, and the third is memory. Um, So what you're talking about is one of the most common problems in accessibility. Uh, And the fact, so the way I like to frame it is I call it finding your Celine. So there's this really great story that was uh, in the book, The Power of Habit, um, where they talk about the fact um, that when Hey Ya first came out, 
basically people shut it off almost immediately. And the reason for it was the sound was so different that it just like, it didn't sound like all the other pop songs. It didn't start like all the other pop songs. It didn't have that. So people turned it off right away because it wasn't familiar to them. We're so talking they, about, hey, uh, the Outcast song. Yes, yes exactly. Yes, just Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so, so basically what they did, which was genius, was they would put, uh, Celine Dion first, then Hey Ya, and then something like Maroon 5, because artists who have songs that all sound the same, it feels comfortable to us. So like, if you've heard a Celine Dion song, they all sound very, very similar. They all have a similar bridge, you know, so it's a comfortable listen. So what happened was the unfamiliar eventually became familiar because it, it basically, the audience was kind of weighted into that innovation. And entrepreneurs do this all the time. We are constantly at the cutting edge of innovation, but the audience that doesn't know us yet, they're not ready for our level of innovation. Like they're not ready for the big, you know, for the, for the big stuff because they're in there now is our before, mm. right? So like where they are now is where we were before, where we were trying to sort of figure things out before we actually found the innovation. So we have to find our Celine. Like we have to go and figure out like, what is that concept that to us feels like, duh, everybody should know this. And then once they're in based off of that concept, we can start introducing them to the innovation, right? So very, very often when we come up with an innovation, we, we want to go full on because we have all of this knowledge and we're like, wow, you know, this is so fascinating and this is so interesting. But so many people are like, wait, 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 slow down. What, like, what happened before? So very, very often what we need to do is we need to sort of tease the innovation as opposed to spending an entire article on it. Right. And just get people to just like have that slight moment of thinking differently. Right. And, and, and that's kind of the core difference. You know, if you think about thought leadership in, in particular, that's the core difference between the thought leaders and like the thought follow the leaders. Right. Um, the thought leaders get you to actually think differently. The thought follow the leaders are basically just like recycling other people's, you know, uh, other people's stuff and trying to tell you how to do things. Mm. Right. If somebody's trying to tell you how to do things, they're they're basically just sort of like, you know, being like, okay, here's the here's the breakdown, you know, kind kind of thing. They're not really giving you a new thought. But if if somebody gives you a new way to think, you're like, oh wow. And now you can actually go forward into the innovation. So a lot of the time it's about finding that Celine, introducing the new idea, and then bringing your audience through to uh, to the innovation uh, rather than hitting them all at once. And this happens in messaging all the time where people will think that they're being innovative, think that they're coming up with like the coolest name ever. And they're really just alienating the heck out of people because they don't understand anything about what the other person's talking about. They're like, but you don't understand. It's this, this, and this. And it's like, nope, you got to start with an anchor. Like people need something to latch onto. This is why startups for, for years when they were pitching their companies would say something like we're the Uber for like little teacup dogs. Right. Yeah anchor it that is so much harder than just <laughs> explaining oh yeah like what it is that you're um figuring out it's um it, it reminds me of this principle that steve and i uh stumbled on a while ago called maya have you ever heard of the maya principle 
Uh, mm. Most, uh, what is it? It's um, most advanced yet acceptable. And it's basically mm. this idea of like, you want to go as far as you can, get it still familiar enough that people can adopt it, essentially. Yep. But to your point, like, how do we um, not go so far away? And I think I do this sometimes, like, not just like runaway train. And you have to get to back to the core of like, what's your motivation? Like, I know myself well enough and I, I've done enough uh, personal development, you know, self-awareness work to know like, oh, what are things that are very important to you? I think I've said this on another podcast. It's like, I know that I was raised to think like being smart, like knowing answers is very important. Like I was just raised in an environment where that was <laughs> held yeah. up as being important. So it might like inadvertently drive a lot of things. I'm, I'm like excited by the people who read like more advanced kind of ideas and give me feedback, which is like, wow, that was like, you know, I don't usually read things like that. I like, I love that. Those people don't buy from me, though. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. Um, wh where do you split the difference? Or like, you know, you don't want to not, you don't want to um, dampen your own creative energy and flow. And part of that work is how I work through things. I don't know about you. It's like I have yeah. to write in order to. But at the same time, it's like you can't really help people if you don't meet them where they are. Yeah. And find their Celine. I love that. I'm gonna remember find your Celine. I'll tell you to talk about sort of like that market research side of things. Yeah. When I did the first referable brand oriented workshop, I used that concept. I talked about that concept and I said just sort of offhand, find your Celine. And I didn't even realize it. Like I had just sort of said it. And at the end of the workshop, I asked people, and this is a really solid tool to yes. always ask people, what did you remember? Right. And basically at the end, I said, you know, what did you remember? What kind of stood out the most for you? What are you going to walk away with? And I went around the room and a lot of people said, find your Celine. And I was like, okay, well, that's, you know, that's a thing, right? Uh, you know, so here's a, here's a little trick. If you are ever in a presentation and uh, you finish and you say any questions and you get crickets, right? So one of the best things that you can do to save that moment is to say, okay, I just want you to take a minute and I want you to write down one sentence, one takeaway, one thing that you're gonna take away from this conversation, that you're gonna do, that you're gonna implement, that you think is useful. And then you go around the room and you start asking those people what that is. And for you, that helps you figure out which part of your talk really landed. Sometimes your side dish becomes your main, mm. right? Where it's like you have this like little thing that you say in one of your talks and that's the thing everybody remembers and that could be the whole talk. That is such a great takeaway. Um, when I think of that, my experiences in those, I like your your find our Celine. When I think, okay, what, you know, when was last, what does that remind me of? Um, you know, giving a talk where one of my points was I wrote this article about Spain, hashtag Spain brain and I mentioned that. Everybody, Spain brain. Part of it is the concept, but part of it is the anchor, right? There's mm -hmm. some little phrase that summed it up really nicely and was not like, you know, find the profit. <laughs> it, yeah. was, it was something unrelated yeah. that, that actually like it's almost like the unrelatedness of it synced it together so that it created a memory in your brain. So it seems like yeah. it's the combination of... Um, not just what was the most powerful idea, but which idea did you really um, embody in some easy, bite-sized, memorable 
peace. Yeah. Um, which is just um, another version of what we started this conversation with, which is how, how do you make a bite-sized memorable piece so people refer you so that it's easy yeah. to remember? I mean, it's the same concept over and over again. Yeah. And, and ultimately, the way I look at it is this uh, concept of being sure to share, right? Mm. So um, basically, shortcuts get shared. Right. So if I can give you a shortcut, if I can help you understand something very, very quickly, you are way more likely to share it with other people because it will be simple for them, too. Right. But you'll share it even more if it has utility. Right. So if there is some way to use it, if there's something that it actually does, you're way more likely to share it. So a business card will get thrown out, whereas a pen will be with a, with somebody's logo will actually be on their desk for years. Right. Because it has utility, mm. whereas a business card has no utility. Right. Um, but the R is for reputation. And if you put something together and I share it with my audience and it looks good, it makes me look like I know what I'm talking about. It adds to my reputation. It makes me look cool. So as a result, I'm building my reputation. But ultimately, the most important aspect is, is it expedient? Is it easy for me to be able to share? This is why click to tweet has always done so well because the idea of taking the extra step of going to Twitter to coming up with the, you know, coming up with the title and the hashtag and all of that stuff is, is a barrier for people. So if you can think about that aspect of, can you create a shortcut for people can you give it some kind of utility where it's like, it's really, really useful? Will it give them a reputation? And is it expedient? They're way, way more likely to share it and talk about it with their, with their friends. And ultimately, that is at the heart of influence because most people think of influence in the context of persuasion, right? They think about it as like, how do I get you to do something? But true influence is when you do something without me asking you to. But you're only going to do something without me asking you to if it makes you look good. And when you create stuff like that, when you make something that causes other people to look good, you have way more influence. So if you people ever take the time to think about how is this going to make somebody else look? We spent a lot of time thinking about how will this make me look, but how does it make somebody else look when they share it? Brilliant. I love it. Thank you so much for coming here. It's been so awesome catching up and thank you for sharing all of your wisdom and I'm great to like nice to see you continuing to trailblaze. It was really fantastic to catch up. Thanks again. Hey guys, if you love this podcast, if you love this episode, I would be grateful if you would share it with a friend who would benefit or better yet on Instagram in your stories and tag me at Pia Loves Your Biz. It really is the best way for others to find out about the show. And I thank you in advance for your help. The No BS Agency podcast is produced by Yellow House Media. Coordinator is Lou Blazer. This episode is edited by Marty Seafelt. Creative direction by Sean and Tara McMullen. Our theme music is Knock 'em Down by The Shrugs. <laughs>